Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. Good day, everybody. You probably heard the recent news that Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg is hard at work on a new project, an alternate universe in which he really, really hopes you'll spend most of your time, the metaverse. That's right. Facebook's new name is Meta, Meta as in overarching, beyond, more than. So the metaverse is what? A greater universe, the universe beyond the universe, a whole new universe accessible within this universe the metaverse. The announcement went something like this. It is time for us to adopt a new company brand to encompass everything that we do. To reflect who we are and what we hope to build, I am proud to announce that starting today, our company is now Meta. Now we have a new North Star to help bring the metaverse to life. And we have a new name that reflects the full breadth of what we do and the future that we want to help build. From now on, we're going to be metaverse first, not Facebook first. Not bad, right? Mark's handlers clearly told him to emulate dorky excitement and he really pulled it off. I guess. I mean, he managed to seem only mostly reptilian. So yeah, Mark is pumped about the metaverse, and he wants us to be pumped too. I mean, who wouldn't be pumped about the idea of a greater universe, a universe beyond, accessible anytime, anywhere? Who wouldn't want more than this? Right now, I'm on the island of Kauai, where my wife's family lives. And ironically enough, I'm actually only about a mile away from where Zuckerberg spends a lot of his time. He's got 700 acres or so of phenomenal oceanfront property here, so he and I of vastly different socioeconomic paradigms and fundamental worldviews, stare out at the same ocean. The same interplay of light and wave, the same roiling, rippling, sonorous sea, the same animate mandala of forces which I could spend a lifetime singing of. Singing of, singing to, singing with, singing, singing... Zuckerberg looks out on this self-same sea, and apparently he thinks, yeah, that's not good enough. I mean, what's next? There's gotta be something more. I gotta get people away from this at all costs. This universe, these spirals of wheeling light, these radiant moons, these cascading waters, these forests of flaming blossoms, the ethereal light, the ferocious light on the water, the water like liquid jade, like a platter of diamonds. This universe is meh. But the metaverse, that's where it's at. I mean, really, the veils have been lifted at this point on the whole neo-tech humanistic capitalism project, right? It's a transcendence project, just as it has always accused the religions of being. Anywhere but here. This world that is, this world of breathable skies and medicinal plants, could use all of our attention, all of our care, all of our songs and plans and rituals of grieving and loving attention, and the best that Zuckerberg and Musk and Branson and Bezos can do is say, yeah, but hey, look over here instead. Look at Mars. Look at the metaverse. The best they can imagine offering everyone is escape. Not vertical gardens, not 10,000-year communal visions, not cities that live up to the promise of what cities could be, because here is not relentlessly monetizable. There must be other worlds that we are perpetually seeking and never reaching. As Jonathan Crary says in his book 24-7, Late Capitalism and the Ends of Sleep, the type of 
deep planning necessary for us to address planetary problems is impossible within this framework of anywhere but here. Quote, it is systematically impossible that there might be a clearing or pause in which a longer time frame of trans-individual concerns and projects might come into view. So everything is about an immediate fix, in a cycle that is built so that the fix never satisfies, and forward progress must continue at all costs. The metaverse is part of a greater mythic narrative around human progress and evolution. And the term itself was coined by writer Neil Stevenson in the 1992 novel Snow Crash. And, you know, it's worth noting that the metaverse in Stevenson's vision was pretty bleak, a virtual escape from a terribly uncomfortable and basically unlivable world. The metaverse was an end times type thing right from the start. Hey, we poisoned the planet beyond recognition, but at least we've got the metaverse. Some consolation. I remember the first pair of VR goggles I put on. It was basically like strapping a dime store kaleidoscope to my face. Nothing particularly meta about it. And now, how many movies have we seen with characters putting on VR goggles and going into some alternate reality? And I mean, really, how lame has that always looked? And it still does. But the narrative, inseparable from the overall narrative of the digital age, is that this is inevitably the next phase of human history. And as it is inevitably the next phase, the story takes on mythic proportions, a story of a future of possibilities and interactions and commerce and gaming and epic battles and quests, all in a place that is not here. Because, no, it couldn't possibly be that this is merely an addictive time suck, a bastard spawn of the attention economy. No, the narrative goes that this is a completely natural human progression and a totally foregone conclusion. Stone Age, to Bronze Age, to Iron Age, to the age of the printing press, to the steam engine, to Atari's Pong, to Fortnite, to the metaverse. We're told that this is the logical next step, not simply an addictive, chaotic free-for-all with profound consequences for human bodies and psyches. Here's Crary again, quote, The pseudo-historical formulation of the present as a digital age, supposedly homologous with the Bronze Age or Steam Age, perpetuates the illusion of a unifying and durable coherence to the many incommensurable constituents of contemporary existence. However, the very different actuality of our time is the calculated maintenance of the ongoing state of transition. There never will be a catching up on either a social or individual basis in relation to continually changing technological requirements. So there's no actual destination to the story. It's not going to culminate somewhere with something in particular. It doesn't liberate us from anything or get us anywhere, ultimately. And Take away the grand mythic narrative and you're left with what? Guys in goggles. It turns out Zuckerberg's metaverse isn't a metaverse at all. Everything the metaverse does will be squarely within this universe. Not one law of the universe will be changed or challenged or altered in the metaverse. Think of it this way. Everything that you will experience in the digital metaverse will be experienced ultimately where? In your body. All the flashing lights and bells and whistles and approval signifiers and dopamine stimulators and casino-proven tactics for attention-grabbing will not transport you anywhere else. And so the actual somatics of the metaverse go something like this. The body sits alone in a room. The body has low-grade radiation beamed at its eyes. The body registers flashing lights. The body registers sounds. The body registers illusory touches. The body wants more. The dopamine is waning now. The body wants more. So what are we left with without the mythic narrative when we look at the somatics of it? We're left with a watered-down form of trance induction based around the addictive somatics of the attention grab. Remove the grand mythic narrative, and Elon Musk's first brave Martian explorers will ultimately be what? Bodies, sitting on a frozen rock, breathing piped-in oxygen, eating freeze-dried Twinkies. A zillion miles away from the nearest forest or spring, alone on a rock, 
in minus 30 weather, but they'll tolerate it knowing that they are part of a grand mythic narrative. The want to see the metaverse as some type of culminating moment or next step in human evolution is a reflection of how deep the human need for mythic narrative goes. You've heard me say it, we need mythic narrative, and we need some type of ritualized traverse. We need other worlds. Access to other worlds is essential. It's just that traditionally, access to other worlds doesn't actually come from blasting a rocket to Mars or strapping on a pair of VR goggles. You can't just get beamed there. You can't just shapeshift into the avatar of your choice by scrolling through menu options. Shapeshifting into the other world traditionally takes a whole lot more than this. There's a lot more at stake. It's a dangerous journey, an exhausting journey, and it's undertaken for very specific reasons. Access to the other world in shamanic and medicinal and ritual and meditative traditions exists ultimately to enhance our presence here in this world to help us foresee dangers, to be better counselors, to plan for hunt and harvest more effectively, to heal, to remember the lineage of ancestry, to repattern and harmonize better with community and with animate forces around us. The other worlds that are traditionally accessed ritually are not what we now call fantasy. They are amplifications of the waking world. They come through the opening of long-lost sensory gates. Ultimately, access to the other world happens through the simplest mechanism of all, a shift in consciousness. And this slight shift in consciousness takes place in bodies. The story of mythical other worlds is really the story of altered states of consciousness experienced within bodies. If you haven't shifted something in the body, then you haven't truly accessed the other world. So the digital metaverse plays on all our deep mythosomatic needs. The need for mythic narrative, the need to shapeshift, the need to journey, the need for trance, the need for luminous focal points, without requiring any of the somatic exchange, without sacrifice, without the sweat of the dance, or the fast, or the vision quest, or the medicine journey, and without providing any of the larger contextual purpose, without the cultural renewal, and of course, with the implicit understanding that in the digital metaverse, absolutely everything you do will be relentlessly observed, your behavior and location and memories tracked, and all will feed the great all-seeing eye of targeted advertising algorithms. Our innate need for a great unifying animate force governing everything, transposed onto a corporation whose only ultimate goal is monetization for the sake of monetization. The words, playing God, certainly come to mind. Almost a century ago now, Tolkien spoke of the lidless eye that never sleeps. Now, it's here. All hail the metaverse. Meanwhile, the true metaverse, the other world, the festival of vibrational forces, as Utpaladeva called it, the kingdom of heaven, is within. Practice an hour of Qigong and you are entering the metaverse. Sing aloud with devotion to the dark dweller in Braj, to the wheel of nectarine forces that surround him, and you are entering the metaverse. Breathe and sit with the infinite permutations of the wave patterns of breath within the body, and you are entering the metaverse. The true metaverse, the true other world, the world within the world, which of course is nowhere other than here, the place of remembering, the body remembered, renewed and reawakened through the illuminating, vivifying, contextualizing power of wide-open awareness. Within this fathom-high body is the arising of all universes and the ceasing thereof, said the Buddha. A billion worlds can be sat through in a single sitting, said Zen Master Dogen, and if you've ever sat meditation for a few days, you know what he's talking about. Culture upon culture and tradition upon tradition has provided a map for ritually harnessed access to the metaverse. So, the ritual is the metaverse. The shapeshifter is the metaverse. The temple is the metaverse. The cave is the metaverse. And that thing that lives right at the center of all of it, that universe within a universe, that portal, that door, that temple, that festival ground, through which all this is felt and accessed, this body is the metaverse. 
the body is the metaverse. This time on the Emerald. It's something of a cliché to speak of the body as a universe, that there is a universe within. But that cliché is there for a reason. The body contains vastnesses beyond measure. It's almost incomprehensible, the vastness of this body. As Bill Bryson says in his book, The Body, A Guide for Occupants, quote, Unpacked, you are positively enormous. Your lungs, smoothed out, would cover a tennis court and the airways within them would stretch nearly from coast to coast. The length of all your blood vessels would take you two and a half times around the Earth. The most remarkable part of all is your DNA. You have a meter of it packed into every cell, so small that 20 billion strands of it laid side by side would fit inside a human hair. A meter of DNA in each cell, and so many cells that if you formed all the DNA in your body into a single strand, it would stretch 10 billion miles to beyond Pluto. Think of it. There is enough of you to leave the solar system. You are, in the most literal sense, cosmic. And of course, the lists like this go on and on. When you breathe, he says, you breathe 25 sextillion oxygen molecules meaning that in a day, you almost certainly breathe in at least one oxygen molecule from the breaths of every person that has ever lived. If you live a good healthy span, then you'll take close to 600 million breaths over the course of a lifetime. Feel into that. 600 million breaths. 600 million opportunities to renew, to replenish, to release... To recalibrate. 600 million chances to find center. Again, again, again. A long, shining rosary. The rosary of breath. The power of breath in bodies has been recognized for centuries. It's not an exaggeration to say that all myths have breath built into them into the telling, into the trajectory of the story, into the subject matter itself. Myths are given power through the breath of the storyteller. Lyric, epic poetry is invoked through altered breath. All the elements of ritual, chanting, singing, meditation, dancing, involve altering breath. The consciousness follows the breath, as one yogic text says, and so the alteration of breath provokes the alteration of consciousness. The steadying of breath provokes steadying of consciousness. When yogis realize that the cosmos and the ritual were all reflections of processes in the body, what is the first thing they sought to harness to link themselves to the greater world? Breath. All that is a way of saying, if you want a ticket to the metaverse, breathe. So, yeah, the body is a universe. And I mean, it's a universe in that it is a vast system describable through its relative components. It is blood and bone and muscle and nerve tissue and digestive organs and sense organs. It is tongues and eyes. It is hair pores. It is T-cells engaged in an almost incomprehensible dance of distinguishing friend from foe. It is the staggering agglomeration that is the microbiome. More cells, they say, that are not you than you. 
It is the pulse of cerebrospinal fluid. It is the rhythmic release of pineal hormones attuned to circadian rhythms of day and night, seasonal change. It is bone marrow. It is pain receptors, heat receptors, cold receptors, kinesthetic receptors in constant, shifting, syncopated glory. But the body is also more than this. It is more than an objectively describable universe. It is a metaverse. What do I mean? I mean the objective physiological description of what the body is says very little about how bodies are actually felt, experienced, envisioned, depicted, painted on cave walls, accessed, harnessed. It says nothing about states of being. States of being, all the pains and ecstasies that take place within the field, kshetra, field, some tantras call the body, all the pains and ecstasies that take place within the field of the body, the battles, the celebrations, the pulses, the waves, the unions, the joinings, the tearings apart, always at play within this fathom-high body. Bodies don't feel like a composite of mineral salts and connective fibers and contractile muscle occupying a few square feet of space. Bodies feel like much, much more than this. You don't experience your lover's body as a spleen and lungs and five liters of blood. You experience it, I hope, as the dynamic center of the world. How vast is your lover's gaze? What thunderstorms at sea swirl in her eyes? What ancestral oak trees branch through his hands? Our perceptions of the world, our bodies, and other bodies are dynamic, energetic, poetic, shifting, changing. Bodies, as they are described in varying traditions, are not static collections of anatomical features. They are pervaded by networks of invisible streams and vessels, tapestries of knots, punctuated with wheels of kinetic luminosity, constellated with meridians, blossoming with flowers and imaginal cities, and populated with deities and spirit helpers. The body, through which all sense impressions pass and all experience filters and patterns itself out, drifts into states of dullness and inertia when not vivified through regular ritual, but when it is enlivened, woken up, becomes the prime vehicle for connectivity to a greater world. The body is the metaverse. Everything we want from the metaverse, the other world, the journey, the mythic narrative, the rapture, the animacy, the opportunity to shapeshift, the catharsis, the return home, is ultimately to be found through the living portal of the body. About a seven and a half hour drive from Facebook headquarters in Menlo Park, California, is the Coso Wilderness Area, which is home to a vast array of rock art. Over a hundred thousand images, some over ten thousand years old. Something out of a dreamscape, the LA Times called it. There are lots of images of bighorn sheep, lizards, grizzly bears. There are what are called entopic images, zigzags and spirals and lattices. And then there are a whole lot of images, thousands upon thousands, that fall into another category. Pattern-bodied anthropomorphs, they are called. Human forms, but not drawn to be what we would call anatomically literal. Bodies with spirals for heads. Bodies with lightning bolt currents running up and down the trunk. Bodies with swirling centers along a central axis. Bodies that arc and bend within the force of energetic winds. Bodies with suns and moons embedded in them. Bodies with plants embedded in them. And of course, therianthropic imagery. Fusions of human body and animal body. Antlered beings, horned beings. The body not as a distinct, isolated, separate thing, but as a place of crossover between worlds. <laughs> And, of course, this type of imagery is not unique to this one canyon in California. So many depictions of bodies dating back thousands of years are not anatomically correct, yet are not simply made up either. In other words, there is a meta-anatomy at work. At Drakensberg Park in South Africa, you'll see imagery of bodies with threads of light connecting the base of the neck to the sky. You'll see images of people with swallow's tails. 
A few thousand miles to the north is the quintessential therianthropic image, the sorcerer of Trois Frères, a half-man, half-deer that stares back at us from 15,000 years ago, crouching there on the cave wall. This art is not abstract in the way we think of abstract. It was not a made-up idea or concept. Wouldn't it be cool if there were half-deer, half-people? Wouldn't it be cool if the sun and the moon were inside the body? No, this art depicts experiences, things people felt and saw. I entered trance and felt the lightning storm in my body. I felt the deep luminosities of the sun and the moon in my body. I felt the neck hairs rise and assumed the animal form in my body. So there is a body within and beyond the body a meta-body which is the source of all such totemic art. The meta-body accessed through trance, through breath, through dancing, through singing. The senses are amplified, refined, awakened. The senses are vast oceans, the tantras say, lapping at the shores of sense objects. And in this way, the body is a gateway, a gateway to a greater world. The vision gained through the waking up of the body's faculties, through the experience of this metabody, is vision into the deeper functioning of the natural world, of the cosmos itself. As Stanisław Tymalsina says, the body mirrors the totality. The phenomenal reality experienced in the felt body is the mirror image of the absolute. So these rock art sites in the California wilderness are more than abstract depictions of bodies. They are what David Whitley calls, quote, a portal to the sacred realm, part of a great metaverse that formed the ritual theater for the Chumash people. Young Chumash initiates, boys and girls, fasted for days, refrained from meat and sex, and then drank tea made from the root of the datura plant for the sole purpose of entering the other world a metaverse in which they could communicate with animals, sometimes shape-shifting into animal form themselves. You know the Datura plant, those milky white trumpet flowers that bloom at night. They grow all around where I live. Have you seen them at twilight? How the silver-green leaves glow against the red desert floor? Have you seen them ghost-like beneath the moon? It's like that plant is an invitation somewhere. Like it could be a door that could open up an entire metaverse, which it can. Because plants, too, are the metaverse. Bodies are the metaverse. Plants are the metaverse. What portals does a fragrant coriander pod open up for us? Or a strong medicinal tobacco? or bitter osha root on the tongue, or the scent of burning copal. What metaverses leap into being as we interact with plants? For the Chumash, the Datura plant, mythologically, was a grandmother, Momoi, who lived long, long ago in human form at the time when all animals were humans, or one could say, when we had easy access to the other world, could speak to and interact with the inhabitants. Then, after the great flood, the human and animal worlds were parted, and the old grandmother saw that humans had lost access to the other world. They couldn't speak to animals anymore. So, Momoi transmogrified into the Datura plant to give people access to the Therianthropic world once again. Interesting, isn't it? Historically open access to the metaverse, taken away from humans, and returned via plants. So the initiation, like many initiations, followed a progression. The preparatory fast, the ingestion of the plant, the shapeshift into animal form, a physical journey to a very specific cave, which was inseparable from the meta-journey into the other world. In the cave, the initiate encountered a specific work of art, which was also a meta-encounter with the animal master itself, the deity. In trance, the initiate gained the ability to speak with animals, and acquired key animal helpers. 
This journey follows a mythic narrative that is common to global mythologies and initiation rituals and that still lives in modern narratives of books and movies and video games. Yes, video games. Does this narrative sound familiar? The hero protagonist assumes an alternate form, a being with enhanced capabilities. This alternate form hero with enhanced capabilities enters an other world. Everything the hero encounters in the other world is deeply significant and must be treated with caution. The hero accumulates helpers in that world. Finally, there is a culminating encounter, after which the hero gains access to even deeper worlds. It's in myths, it's in rituals, and it's in pretty much every video game you can think of. It's no coincidence that the central mechanism of digital metaverses, the adopting of an avatar, involves a type of shape-shifting. You know, you choose your avatar, you choose its hairstyle and build and dress and abilities and weapons, and adopt a different identity for the journey to come. It's also no coincidence that the most common video game narrative involves the acquisition of what can only be called spirit helpers. Mario enlists Toad and Yoshi and Whale and Whittles and Thunderhand and other helpers as he hops on turtles in Mushroom Land and gathers bright, shiny coins. Shamanic undertones, anyone? I mean, his helpers are directly described as tree spirits and genies. It's easy to laugh at, but it's a very simple equation. Embedded animism, inherent mythic narrative structure, the hardware of the human being. And some use examples like this to discredit myth. See, myth is just the human need to make up stories, right? I see it the opposite way. See how utterly essential mythic narrative is. See how we can't live without it. See how it still remains the fabric of our world. But we live now with only a ghost of it, an abstraction of it. Grand mythic narrative divorced from somatic, communal, ecological, artistic, and cosmic context. When the Chumash drank Datura tea in order to speak with animals, they did it out of an urgent need for balance in their communities. And they did it at great cost to themselves. Now, why do we enter these other worlds? Boredom? Addiction? Money? A simple, inescapable fixation on flashing, shiny objects? Access to metaverses inherently requires some element of shape-shifting. We must shape-shift our way into the other world. But true shape-shifting is not abstract. True shape-shifting is the act of altering consciousness to awake certain powers that lie latent in the human being, to bring the sense faculties to life, to understand that in trance, the human being's senses fly awake and one can feel the heightened perception that fur or feathers or scales bring. No offense to Deepak Chopra, but being a metahuman has nothing to do with unlocking some motivational potential that makes you better at dominating the workplace. The place of the metahuman is the trance of the shapeshifter, who enters the metaverse of the animal body, singing, dancing, drumming, shifting the shape of their consciousness to get there. This is not a symbolic journey. It is felt through the force of horripilation, hair rising in trance. Fur is sprouted, antlers grown, senses wake as the door opens to the metaverse. I've seen the shapeshifters in India transforming into lions. The Sufis do it, the dancers of the Kalahari. The Norse had several words for various types of shapeshifting. Says Eduardo Ramos, quote, the term used to describe when a person travels outside of their body in the shape of an animal is hamfarir. So there is shape-shifting in which the shapeshifter still inhabits their body, and there is also shape-shifting in which the trance is so deep that the body lies inert while they leave their body as a raven or a trout or an eagle. Quote, Then the body lay as if asleep or dead, but he was then a bird or an animal, a fish or a serpent, and went in one moment to far-off lands, on his own errands, or on others. Shapeshifting is a doorway to wake up sensory faculties, to wake the individual up to the gifts of communion with the natural world that lay dormant in normal, waking, beta states of human consciousness. Like I said, such access to metaverses, such shapeshifting practices are everywhere.
For example, it often gets overlooked how much of Tibetan Tantric Buddhism is shape-shifting. Yes, Tibetan Buddhism is codified shape-shifting. Shh, don't tell anyone. But it's hidden in plain sight. There are very literal practices of assuming animal form. In certain obscure Dzogchen traditions, cave yogis enact powerful ritual psychodrama, becoming wolves, for example, howling for hours as a technique to enter the non-dual state, leaping like animals until a state of complete exhaustion transports the yogi into the non-dual state. And then there are the more commonly known visualization practices, thousands upon thousands of them, in which one directly embodies the deity. What does that mean, embody the deity? Does it mean you picture the deity? It means shape-shifting. One assumes the form of the boar-headed Dakini. One assumes the form of the red-limbed, ferocious Dakini dancing on a brilliant lotus in a churning sea of blood nectar. One ritually chops oneself up into little pieces and offers oneself in an imaginal skull cup. The cremation ground is the playing field for the tantric shapeshifter. Teeming with forces on the edge of life and death, existence and non-existence, a portal between worlds, a metaverse. Yet not an illusory metaverse. At its heart, the cremation ground is Ogmin, the realm of pure appearance. One enters the metaverse not to escape, not to go off on some fantastical illusory journey. One enters, rather, to see things exactly as they are. Tantric practitioners realized that the body is the metaverse a long time ago. Tantric depictions of the body reveal a vast landscape, a field, as it is called in some tantras, kshetra, field, teeming with animate forces and celestial bodies. The right eye is the sun, the left the moon, the crown opens into a vast imaginal city, flowers bloom at the root, fire blazes at the navel, deities inhabit every joint. Every sense faculty, in fact, is a deity. Every sense faculty is a deity. So the five Buddha families are animate expressions of the refined senses. This opening and refining of the sensory gates into a place of deeper awareness is corollary to visions of spirit helpers in indigenous traditions. In the beautiful mask sculpture Yeik Spirit Helpers by Tlingit artist Scott Jensen, Animal spirit beings are shown populating the initiate's ears, mouth, eyes, forehead. The spirit helper is inseparable from the wakened perception that comes in the journey to the other world. The true metaverse is a place of sensory wakefulness. It's a different vision of the body than some of the more austere religions present, right? And in this way, Tantra is a deep reclaiming of animism. A body populated, a body with little deities in the nostrils that perform the act of breathing, a body wrapped in sonic potencies, installed with mantras, a goddess mantra installed on each finger, animate forces ritually placed in each of the joints and limbs, a singing goddess placed right at the throat, sealed with seven-syllable invocations, a vibrant, animate, feeling, perceiving, body, a body pervaded with streams and currents. The texts describe in detail the tantric meta-anatomy. Five knots, five voids, nine wheels, eleven wheels, twelve knots, at least three sets of sixteen loci, sixteen knots, twenty-eight vital points, and on and on. And here's what's interesting, this meta-anatomy is not fixed. The whole you have seven chakras, one for each color of the rainbow thing, is a vast oversimplification. The map changes from tradition to tradition, practice to practice, text to text, teacher to teacher. In some of the tantric practices I did as a teenager, there were three chakras, in others, five. Others focused entirely on the central column. The shushumna hollow and brilliant like a candle flame. Ethereal blue and golden red like a candle flame the void in the very center of the central channel empty, like the very, very center of the candle flame. You know that part just around the wick that seems to be empty space. 
So this variable map suggests that the metabody is something inherently artful, evolving, growing, changing, harnessable through repetitive practice, just as the initiate might experience lightning in the body, and then another time the winding growth of plants in the body, and then another time the sun and moon in the body, and the jagged flow of rivers in the body. The metaverse is ever creative, in a state of eternal, artful expression. So this is a vision of the body as metaverse, as a multiplicity of forces and experiences not adequately described by anatomy alone. And in an age when science is telling us that much of our personality may be determined by our gut biome, and that we breathe in the breath of everyone who's ever breathed, the notion of a body populated with animate forces doesn't seem so strange after all. The body, a circle of deities as one tantric hymn calls it, quote, In this manner, I praise the circle of deities innate within the body, an elevated assembly continually present, the culmination of everything, vibrant, and the essence of experience. Thus, the sacred hymn to the circle of deities in the body is fully complete. So the body is the portal, the altar, where the ritual of awakening into a world of deeper perception takes place. The very body is the primary altar, say the text. And as Timolcina says, quote, When the body is conceived of as an altar, the somatic functions are identified as ritual worship of the deity. The somatic functions are worship, to open the eyes, to open the ears, to open the taste buds, to awaken the ocean of the senses lapping at the shores of phenomenological reality, is to worship at the gates of the great mystery of nature. To enter the place of seamless union with nature through the waking of the animate forces that are the senses. The senses unawakened can be a prison. The senses fed pre-programmed content in a passive digital metaverse can be manipulated into an endless cycle of addiction. But the senses, opened, are spontaneous, ever-creative, animate forces. The goddesses, the harmonics of nature, the senses opened in the bristling forest. The pores breathing awake in the low-hanging mists. The senses opened, opened, awake. Wake, the senses wake, wake. There is nothing the digital metaverse could offer that could ever compare to walking through a misty pre-dawn forest. Wake, the senses wake. The body is the altar. Quote, the Vedic altar is constructed in proportion to the sacrificer's body, suggesting that the altar is the extended body of the sacrificer. And the Maharta Manjar describes the relation between the body and the altar. The instrumental deities pulsate in the altar in one's own body that is identical to the cosmos. So the structure of the altar with its central stone is a focal point, its garlands of flowers, its elemental offerings of light and sound and ether and water, is the body, which is the cosmos. Quote, In this complex ritual process, the structure of the body is made to correspond to the structure of the cosmos. The body becomes an index of the cosmos, which is itself conceptualized in terms of the body. And so the great temples from Mexico to Egypt to India are maps of the cosmos, a cosmos reflected in the body. In India, to step into a temple is to step into the greater cosmos and to step into one's own body. Quote, the temple is perceived as a body, most often a human body. As the body has its foundation in a lotus, the root chakra, so also is the temple built on the support of a lotus. The cosmic pillar of the temple is the spinal cord in the human body, with different chakras as the centers where deities reside. The inner sanctum of the temple, the womb house, explicitly suggests the embryonic stage. I remember stepping across the threshold at Nidivan Temple in Vrindavan, India, barefoot across the threshold. If you're paying attention, there is a meta-journey that takes place with this simple step, across a material threshold and an inner threshold at once the step over the stone lintel 
into the other world, into, at this temple, silvery, powdery sand, soft as talc, into an undulant dreamscape of trees in the shapes of dancers and animate beings, teeming with golden bees, humming with drupad music, the site that marks the place where Krishna and Radha meet for their nightly dances. The barefoot step across the threshold into the other world, into the body. As Undal once sang, we are standing at your threshold. Lord, we are standing at your threshold. We are showered in dew. We are standing at your threshold. We are showered in dew. The temple is the body. The temple is the metaverse. To step across the threshold into the body of the temple, into the enchanted geography, is to step into the metaverse. To see the stone at the center is to see a stone, and to see the center of everything at once. Step across the threshold. Step into enchanted land. Step into the fairy wood. The fairy wood is the metaverse. The fairy wood, the space where all the fairy stories transpire, this is the metaverse. It's not some abstract supernatural space, for as Tolkien explained, there's nothing supernatural about the fairy realm, but rather a place, a state, where the truth of nature is revealed, a state far realer than our normal waking beta wave state. The fairy wood feel into it. It's the forest, but it's not totally the everyday forest, right? It's different. The fairy wood is the forest seen as it is. It's the forest seen with wide open eyes, the eyes of the youngest daughter who enters the fairy wood. Entry into the fairy wood is entry into the metaverse. Who enters the realm of fairy enters the metaverse, complete with all of its idiosyncrasies and all of its responsibilities. And one has to take very special care. Who rules this metaverse? The Fairy Queen. The Fairy Queen. She is animacy itself. Trance itself. The place where time dilates. The place where stones speak and trees whisper. The place where wishes come true. The place of sentience. Senses wide open. Awake. Awake. Senses wide open. Awake. Awake. Eyes wide open. Awake. We meet the fairy queen. The Thousand and One Arabian Nights tells the story of the fairy queen, Peri Banu. A young prince, Ahmed, and his brothers are sent off to seek a great gift to win the hand of a princess. Whoever finds the greatest gift shall win her. In a distant marketplace in a faraway world, one brother finds a looking glass that can see infinitely far. Another finds a simple carpet that can travel anywhere instantly and the other finds an apple that heals all sickness. The gifts of the metaverse, like all shamanic other worlds, like all deep trance states, vision, prophecy, journeying, temporospatial dilation, medicine. So the looking glass reveals that the princess has been taken ill. The brothers climb aboard the flying carpet and make their way instantly back to her side, and then they heal her with the magic apple. Using the gifts of the other world, the gifts attained in the vision space, to attend to the problems of this world. You see, there is a precise balance within which the gifts of the metaverse must be used. Since each of the brothers brought back a great gift, none greater than the other, the king now holds an archery contest to determine who will marry the princess. One brother's arrow falls short. Another's flies far and Ahmed's flies way off to the left, out of sight. 
The princess marries the far-shooting brother, while Ahmed goes on a journey to track down his arrow, the one that went way off to the left. It leads him to a cave where he finds an underground world governed by the fairy queen, Peri Banu. They meet, they fall in love, and Ahmed earns his place in the fairy realm. However, after some time, he misses his family. He longs to visit them. He does, and his father, the king, gets a whiff of something different about Ahmed. Something he can't place, but something that he wants. So he has Ahmed followed by a sorceress. You know, someone who cheats their way into the other world instead of earning it. The sorceress tells the king of the great riches of the fairy realm. And so the king invades, forces his way into the other world. He takes Ahmed, his son, and imprisons him, and keeps Peribanu by his side, where he makes her grant him wishes. Wish after wish after wish after wish. He wishes for all the obvious things. And then he gets bored of the obvious things. So he wishes for the not-so-obvious things. I want a tent that fits in my hand but can house my entire army, right? And what's that? I want to be able to bend time and space. Not because of any communal need or to be in better relation with inanimate cosmos, but because I can. I want water from the eternal fountain of lions. Sure, let me drink from the everlasting source, just because. Peribanu grants all the wishes, that's what she does, she grants the wishes. What next? What do I want next? Oh, I know. I want you to bring me a dwarf that's only a foot and a half tall, but that has a 30-foot beard and wields an iron club. Now why would anyone wish for that? Certainly, says Peribanu. But did you know that that's my brother? The brother appears in a flash of flame. And he is not at all pleased about being summoned. He clubs the king to death, and Ahmed and the fairy queen take their rightful place as rulers of the kingdom. So while Ahmed earned access to the other world, his father, the king, did not. The king could only capture what was not rightfully his. And then, of course, he has no idea what to do with it once he got it. He's bored. He wants more, more, more. He thinks up any old thing. He stands before the very fountain of creation, the fairy queen, and asks for every distracted, agitated whim and impulse to be granted. Until, of course, finally, in deeply over his head, he wishes for his own demise. Perhaps today's magisters of tech have not earned the right to the magic they've unleashed. The manipulation of sound and light and image and symbol to gain attention is not something to be taken lightly. The power of mass global transinduction is a profound power. Whose hands is it in? Societally, we reward most those who take us into trance states. Athletes, rock stars, filmmakers, politicians. Consciousness alteration drives new technological innovation. But traditionally, the trance space the other world comes with a whole lot of responsibility. And those who would be the arbiters of that space must truly understand the dynamics of consciousness itself. In the Chumash cosmology, the grandmother Momoi, who became the Datura plant, came with a lesson, much like the fairy queen in the story of Peri Banu. Don't misuse my gifts. Momoi advised the people to drink water in which she had washed her feet only, but not water in which she had washed her entire body. Those who disobeyed and drank too deeply of the powers of the metaverse were likely to fall into a catatonic slumber. Sound familiar? Interestingly enough, this story of Peri Banu is the subject of what many have called the oldest animated film, the 1926 movie The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. It's really a beautiful film, look it up. And probably unintentional, but isn't it interesting that one of the very first movies, an art form based in trance induction, has at its heart a story about being very careful of how we use the gifts of the other world. <laughs>
Traditionally, those who administered access to other worlds, those who provoked altered states, who took people on journeys of prolonged rapturous attention, in which they surrendered control and went into the vision space, traditionally, they were ritualists, shamans, priestesses who understood the responsibilities, the protocols, the reciprocal exchange, and the deep context necessary. The journey into the other world was treated with extreme care. And the purpose of it was always individual and societal renewal. Long periods of being elsewhere were only as good as their impact here. The Chumash drank datura and spoke to animals because communal healing was at stake, and insight into how better to live in relation with the world. And the object at the center of this rapture was an equilibrium point, the balance of nature, the balance of the community, the source, not a corporation. Now we are faced with the possibility of large swaths of humanity spending long periods of time every day in a space in which they are in a low-grade trance, without any framework of healing, any understanding of rapture, any communal accountability, any context through which to integrate their experience, any ethos at the heart of it. A metaverse that, rather than connecting us with the greater cosmos, amplifies the most narrow, most addictive, most liminal human behaviors and harnesses them for profit. The somatic implications are deep. Sedentary bodies strapped into the digital metaverse for hours at a time, juiced to the gills on monster energy drink and cheese doodles, are in for a rude awakening when the hours spent shape-shifting into their svelte avatars don't make their actual bodies any healthier. Depression and anxiety, already on the rise from the constant use of smart technology, is bound to skyrocket further. But there's something deeper, too, something more basic, about available space. If this digital metaverse becomes our other world, if this becomes our imaginal space, then where does the true other world go? To where is the true other world banished? Where do we access in-between spaces? Where do we sit alone with our imaginations? How do we behold the animal master on the cave wall? How do we have time to envision, to incubate, to heal? Before the end of his life, Crary tells us, author Italo Calvino said that humanity was on the verge of losing a basic human faculty, the power of bringing visions into focus with our eyes shut. If waking hours are dominated by the digital metaverse, if we are beamed content through the entirety of our day, where can we go then for space except to sleep? Where will the true metaverse retreat except perhaps to our dreams? Perhaps to our dreams, the one space they can't control yet. Dreams, dreams, dreams are the metaverse. The state of dreaming sleep takes us to a space beyond the waking universe, a place that used to live at the center of communal life and shape culture in profound and nonlinear ways. In their new book, The Dawn of Everything, authors David Graeber and David Wengro note the great lengths that certain Native American vision questers would travel in order to locate objects that had come to them in dreams. Among Iroquoian-speaking peoples in the 16th and 17th centuries, it was considered extremely important to literally realize one's dreams. Many European observers marveled at how Indians would be willing to travel for days to bring back some object, trophy, crystal, or even animal that they had dreamed of acquiring. The interpenetration of dream geography with land the understanding that creative visioning in the metaverse that is the dream state has a role to play in how we interact with land and with each other in the waking universe, sat right at the heart of many cultures. And then, quote, there was a vast dispossession and disempowerment in the 19th century when dreaming was severed from any residual links to a magico-theological framework. The imaginative capability of the dreaming sleeper underwent a relentless erosion. This Erosion of the metaverse of the dream state was kicked into high gear by Sigmund Freud. Freud was terrified of dreams. As Crary says, as unsettled by dreams as he was by trance states. 
He considered them the last vestiges of primitivism because they hinted at basic human irrationality. They whispered in surreal tones of creatures that change shape in the night, and surfaces that sprout fur, and textures that aren't what they seem to be. But fortunately, Freud said, dreams, with the rise of the rational, had been banished to the night. Banished to the night, in this way, dreaming sleep remains one of the last holdout spaces that defies the relentless narrative of modernity. A true metaverse. Quote, sleep is an uncompromising interruption of the theft of time from us by capitalism. Sleep is a ubiquitous but unseen reminder of a pre-modernity that has never been fully exceeded. The scandal of sleep is the embeddedness in our lives of the rhythmic oscillations of solar light and darkness, activity and rest, work and recuperation, that have been eradicated or neutralized elsewhere. Yet the eradication of the sleep state is well underway. Advertisers are busily trying to penetrate the dream state, MIT recently revealed. The very ethos of modernity is always on, 24-7, everything awake, everything monitored within a relentless gaze. It goes without saying that all time spent in the digital metaverse is time that will be watched, observed, analyzed, cataloged. No free mental space. In mythic terms, of course, the state of eternal wakefulness was traditionally reserved for the divine. In India, one of the names for the unblinking, all-pervasive awareness is Minakshi, she of the wide-open eyes like a fish, she who is consciousness itself, consciousness that never sleeps. By contrast, the U.S. military calls its operation of perpetual wakefulness Operation Gorgon Stare. How's that for mythic narrative? The purpose, traditionally, of sensory wakefulness, sensory wakefulness as an act of worship, is to behold that before which we stand with awestruck wonder at its spontaneity, at its life, at its billion-year time spans, at nature, over whom we have ultimately no control. The project of perpetual technological wakefulness, by contrast, is a project to gain ultimate control. It will be a challenge in the coming times to maintain access to unmonitored, uncatalogued, untweeted, unmonetized other worlds. Yet such access is utterly vital to our survival. And such access is only a few breaths away. When we understand that the body, the breath, the dance step, the hum, the mantra, the song, the ecstatic cry, the asana, these are our vehicles to the imaginal space, to the true metaverse. In this onslaught of content, we can maintain regularly accessible other worlds. I'll say that again, maintain regularly accessible other worlds, incubatory spaces, circles for listening and dreaming. We need this somatic dream space. Dreams defy narratives of inevitability. Dreams take us down roads we never thought of. And who knows where into what futures those roads could lead. It is possible, Crary says, that in many different places, in many disparate states, including reverie or daydream, the imaginings of a future beyond capitalism begin as dreams of sleep. We'll explore these incubatory spaces more on the next episode, but let us leave this line ringing in the ether. The imaginings of our shared future begin as dreams of sleep. They begin in bodies.
If you liked this episode and you're enjoying the work of the podcast, please consider becoming a patron. It costs as little as $6 a month, and you get access to our twice-monthly study groups and a host of other benefits, and it's a really great way to connect with other people around these mythic topics. It's a growing, vibrant community, and the discussions are really awesome, and I hope you'll consider joining. You can find out more information at patreon.com slash theemeraldpodcast. And you may have heard me mention in prior episodes a year-long course of mythic study. It's called The Mythic Body. We're in the middle of it right now. This year's course is full, but if you're interested in receiving information about next year's course, send me an email at themythicbody at gmail.com, and I'll be sure to put you on the list. And until next time, may our lives be driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder. This episode contains reference to many books, articles, movies, and works of art. These include Snow Crash by Neal Stevenson, 24-7 Late Capitalism and the Ends of Sleep by Jonathan Crary, highly recommended, The Body, A Guide for Occupants by Bill Bryson, Stranger Magic by Marina Warner, The Tantric Body by Gavin Flood, Love Song of the Dark Lord, Barbara Stoller Miller's translation of the Gita Govinda, Undal and Her Path of Love by Vidya Dehegia, the Lord of the Rings, and On Fairy Stories by J.R.R. Tolkien. Yeik, Spirit Helpers, a sculpture by Tlingit artist Scott Jensen. The Dawn of Everything, David Graeber and David Wengro, also highly recommended. The Art of the Shaman, Rock Art of California by David Whitley. Reconstructing the Tantric Body, Elements of the Symbolism of Body in the Monistic Kaula and Trika Tantric Traditions by Stanisław Timilsina. Nightmare Scenario, Alarm as Advertisers Seek to Plug into Our Dreams. That's by Adam Gabbett, writing in The Guardian in July 2021. Tibetan Yoga, Principles and Practices by Ian Baker. Mojave Art on the Rocks, Susan Spano, writing in the LA Times in 2007. The Datura Cult Among the Chumash, Richard B. Applegate, writing in the Journal of California Anthropology. Myth, Ritual, and Rock Art, Coso Decorated Animal Humans and the Animal Master by Alan Garfinkel and colleagues writing in Rock Art Research. The Dreams of a Bear, Animal Traditions in the Old Norse Icelandic Context, Eduardo Ramos writing for Medieval Icelandic Studies. The Adventures of Prince Ahmed, the 1926 film by Lottie Reiniger. And, of course, Super Mario World and the games and characters of the Mario universe. Thank you.